0: It's an honor, always an honor to be here and to um, be able to share the Word of God. I got a prescription some years ago for nasal spray. And when I picked it up at the pharmacy, I read the instructions on it and just had to laugh. And I actually wrote them down because I thought, you know, I never want to forget this. The, the, ins- the instructions for nasal spray said this. Inhale one tab under the tongue twice daily. <laughs> read that a couple times and it still didn't make sense. And I thought, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I don't know how to do that. Nasal spray. You know, it it does well for us to apply a little common sense to our daily lives. Um, But sometimes, honestly, that can backfire on us. I remember reading about when uh, Chuck Yeager, the pilot, was flying over a lake one day and he knew a friend that lived there on the lake and he decided to buzz so, anyway, Jaeger was flying over the lake, and he wanted to buzz a friend 's house, you know go down real low and buzz the friend 's house and As he got down and sort of started to roll to do that, the little flipper on his on the the wing is called the aileron and it 's the thing if you look out the windows on the airplanes, they kind of twist like that on the wings, and his aileron locked to where he started rolling and just kind of kept rolling and he 's buzzing so he 's like real low. And he feels like okay well i'm I'm about to die well he he slowly is able to to nose the the plane up, which was down, and the the aileron unlocked and he he went ascended and he went up to about fifteen thousand feet. he said to try that again and and he tried it again and it locked and he knew of a number of pilots that had died because their aileron had locked, and they you know they they just crashed and so he went to his superior and and said. Uh, I'm not sure what's wrong, but my aileron locked, and maybe that's why all these pilots are dying. So they went to work to try to figure out what the problem was, and they were just—they couldn't figure it out until they—they they finally traced the problem to one man on an assembly line. He—he um, he assembled a bolt on the aileron cylinder, but he installed the bolt upside down because he said everybody knows that. Or No, he installed it right side up because he said every, everybody knows that the bolts shouldn't be installed upside down, even though that's what the, the plans required. And Yeager said that nobody ever told this man how many pilots he had killed because he applied his own common sense as opposed to following the directions. You know, I think we find ourselves in a dilemma in life. Um, how do we know what bolts go up and what bolts go down? We're left to our common sense, you know, we, we can apply common sense to inhaling nasal spray under the tongue and figure, well, that's probably not what I should do. But when it comes to some other things, we, we have a natural uh, skepticism, a natural doubt about them. And we, we can naturally also carry that skepticism into our relationship with God. Um, We don't want to. We probably would never admit that out loud. But in our heart of hearts, in the quiet moments, in the hard times of life, we're not sure if the bolts should go up or down. The Lord says something, and it seems what we might call an odd prescription. Lord, do you really mean that? Is this really what I should do? In this circumstance, it really doesn't seem like I should be doing that. And so our challenge becomes common sense versus God's Word. Oswald Chambers said these words, he said, the majority of us do not enthrone God, we enthrone common sense. We make our decisions, and then we ask the real God to bless our God's decision. Turn, if you would, to the book of Mark, chapter 1, and also turn to Leviticus 14 kind of just have both of those open right there together, because we're going to look at one and then look at the other pretty quickly. Leviticus 14 and Mark chapter 1. So far in the book of Mark, as we've worked our way through it, this first chapter, Jesus has been introduced to us through John the Baptist. John the Baptist has burst onto the scene in Mark's gospel, the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the good news of the kingdom of God, that the Messiah is coming. He is going to prepare the way for the kingdom of God. John the Baptist sets the stage. Jesus shows up and keeps that same message going. He says, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. He chooses some disciples, begins his ministry, and he's in Capernaum in the synagogue teaching. He does a miracle there. He heals, does some healing and all of a sudden, his his preaching ministry becomes a healing ministry, and he gets off by himself one morning and just spends some time with the Father and realizes, you know what, we need to leave, we need to go somewhere else, because I need to be preaching. And this is turning, it's turned upside down. Instead of my message supporting, instead of the, the miracle supporting my preaching, it's the other way around now, and I'm doing far more healing. So that's... That's where we are so far. Jesus has burst onto the scene. He is this fantastic preacher. He is this sought after healer. But he knows that his priority is to preach. Mark chapter 1, let's start where we left off in verse 40. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, keep your hand there, but turn where you have open there to Leviticus 14 and let's look for a moment at the law of cleansing a leper. Leviticus 14, right in verse 1 the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest, shall go. Uh, the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live, clean birds, and cedar wood, and scarlet string, and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to slay one bird, in an earthenware vessel over running water, as for the live bird, he shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. He shall then sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the live bird go free over the open field." sounds kind of odd, you know, this uh, prescription for the cleansing of the leper. It was actually sort of academic because lepers never were healed. But if a leper was to ever be healed, this is what was supposed to happen for him. Now Jesus heals a leper. And the the provision is made for this leper. Uh, the symbolism that we read here seems a little unusual, but... Remember, these birds or the sacrifices, any sacrifice that you brought to the tabernacle, Old Testament, temple, Old Testament, and New Testament, that, that uh, sacrifice represented you. If you took uh, a goat or uh, an animal up to the altar, that sacrifice represented you. Even Jesus' death on the cross represented you. That animal was your substitute. And so these live birds represented the leper, and the, lo- the, the, the one of the birds was killed, which represents potentially what could have happened to the leper. Another bird was left alive, and it's almost like you've got this—you've got your life in God's hands, and God chooses to have mercy. And it sort of pictures what Jesus, how Jesus responded in Mark, where he says, "I am willing." You know, it can go either way. There can be the dead bird or the live bird. The leper can go either way. But God has chosen mercy, and the dead bird, of course, you know, the dead bird's dead, and then the live bird, not only is he alive, but he gets to go free. He gets to fly. If you think about the sacrifice of Jesus, in a way, it sort of mirrors those birds. Uh, There was a death, but there was also life and ascension. So this leper... Uh, these, these, the symbolism here is that both birds represent the person who is healed, and the leper now can worship. Notice back in Mark chapter 1, the leper's request wasn't to be healed, but was to be cleansed. Obviously, in order to be cleansed, you have to be healed, but his goal, his, his passion, his desire was to be cleansed, because once you're determined that you're clean, now you can go into the temple and worship the Lord. His desire was to come into God's presence once again. And so Jesus reaches out, touches him, and the man is cleansed. You know, when Jesus walked around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he had one message. We've seen it already in the book of Mark. The other gospels concur, and that is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so whenever Jesus would heal, it was giving a preview that what he said he could deliver on. That the kingdom of God that he offered is something that he actually could deliver. The healing that he did, the miracles that he did, backed up his message. If he can do this, then he can certainly bring the kingdom and we should repent. We need to view every single physical recovery as a preview of our resurrection in the kingdom. Even now you can think of it that way. I was thinking about that as we were sharing during the share time. Notice how many of the requests or the praises that came had to do as a result of physical illness or physical suffering. And right along with the physical suffering were words like, and I thank God. Strange how the Lord just has it in our hearts that whenever there is physical suffering and then there's some kind of uh, healing or progress that we give praise to God. We need to view every single physical recovery as a preview of what Jesus will do ultimately, cosmically, in the kingdom of God. When he healed, he was giving a preview of what he promises to do in the kingdom. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. So he heals the leper, and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away, and he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but... Go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What we read in Leviticus, that's what Jesus said. You know that law in Leviticus that never got applied? Now's your chance. You can go and surprise these priests with these two birds. They'll be so uh, so surprised. But Jesus says it is to be a testimony to them. What Moses commanded is a testimony to them. To them, to the priests. Remember last week, or the last time we were together, we saw that Jesus intentionally sought to leave Capernaum and go and preach in other towns because his ministry was being reduced to that of a miracle worker. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God, not simply to heal diseases. But even amidst his priority to preach, he had mercy, he was involved with healing and compassion, as it supported his preaching. He reached out and touched the leper, which normally would make the toucher unclean. You don't touch lepers, because they make you unclean. They're unclean, they make you unclean. But it was just the other way around. Instead of the leper making Jesus unclean, Jesus touching the leper made him clean. And Jesus sternly warned this man to keep quiet, except to tell the priests couple of reasons for that. One, the purpose of the miracles was to validate Jesus' message. That's why he calls it a testimony to the priests. Um, Only God cured leprosy. In the Old Testament, when Moses, remember he put his hand, it says he put his hand into his bosom and pulled it out, and he had leprosy. He put it in real quick and pulled it out. Oh, it's back to normal. Only God can do that. When Miriam had leprosy, only God could heal her. When Naaman had leprosy, Only God could heal him. And so when this man who was a leper goes to the priests, they would realize, or they should, only God heals leprosy. God must be here. God must be here. And Jesus can offer, can deliver the kingdom that he's offering. The second reason is Jesus doesn't need any more press about being a healer. He's got enough of that. But the man instead goes out and immediately spreads the word. Look at verse 45. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. You know, the leper probably thought, oh, Jesus doesn't really mean to put the bolt in upside down. No way. It makes a lot more sense that I share this good news. God healed me. I want to share it. Well, Jesus had a reason for keeping it quiet. And we see the reason right here, because Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. He was so thronged by requests for healing that he couldn't even enter a city and he had to stay out in the unpopulated areas. Mark is telling us that the man didn't just tell a couple of friends, but this, his direct disobedience hindered the work of God, hindered the work of God. You know, like that guy with the bolts on the airplane, it seems a small thing to just put, put the bolt this way instead of that way, but it actually took lives as a result. This man may have thought, that's not a big deal. I don't need to go to Jerusalem and proclaim it to the priests. I'll just proclaim it right up here. You know, we want a, a testimony. I can give testimony. I'll do it right here. But it kept Jesus from being effective in those areas. So here's a principle that I want you to consider and think about, a lesson for life. Disobedience, even with the best intentions, doesn't bring the best results. Disobedience with the best intentions doesn't bring the best results. God knows why he gives us the commands, even when they make no sense. If Jesus Christ had handed me that uh, nasal spray to go under my tongue, I'd have done it. But that would have been really weird. But I'd have done it because Christ did it. Um, Henry Blackaby told this story. Listen to his words, Henry Blackaby. He writes, The first funeral I ever conducted was for a beautiful three-year-old. She was the first child born to a couple in our church and the first grandchild in their extended family. Unfortunately, she was spoiled. While visiting the little girl's home one day, I observed that she loved to ignore her parents' instructions. When they told her to come, she went. When they said, sit down, she stood up. Her parents laughed, finding her behavior cute. One day in their front yard, the gate was inadvertently left open, and the parents saw that their child escaped out of the yard and was heading toward the road. To their horror, a car was racing down the street. As she ran out between the two parked cars, they both screamed at her to stop and turn back. She paused for a second, looked at her parents, and then gleefully laughed as she turned and ran into the path of the oncoming car. They rushed her to the hospital, but she died from her injuries. Blackaby says, As a young pastor, this was a profound lesson for me. I realized I must teach God's people not only to recognize His voice, but also immediately to obey His voice when they hear it. It is life. The Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, and he said these words. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The word there for disregard means to think around. Literally, that's what it means. Let no one think around what you're saying. Let no one think, you know, the bolt really should go this way, not that way. To think around God's word means that you find his odd prescriptions don't really have to be followed. But like Eve in the garden, life after disobedience is not better as the devil promised it would be. We find out that God's word was given to direct us and to protect us. You know, it's really odd the level of confidence that we place in our own judgment. Kind of scary how we enthrone common sense a lot of times. Uh, It's kind of a lot like a buffet. We'll read through the Bible, we'll read through Proverbs, we'll read through various passages and we'll say yes, no, yes, no. We'll get to pick the parts of the Bible that we really want to apply and the others we just kind of sweep under the rug. And you know what I mean. That particular command that you know that you directly disobey on a regular basis. I had the same struggle. Disobedience, even with the best intentions, never produces the best results. God's ability, beyond every other ability, is what we need to place our faith in. Not our own ability, not our own level of confidence. You know, we'll trust God. For example, the leper. The leper trusts God. Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. He believes Jesus can heal him. And Jesus does. And yet he doesn't believe Jesus to not tell anybody. We're the same way. We have no problem trusting Christ for eternity, but somehow I'm just not sure how I'm going to make it through the week. It seems odd, isn't it, to have that contradiction, that our trust in Christ for something that we don't know about uh, experientially, and yet we really trust, struggle to trust Christ for the things that we do know. Well, as we come to chapter 2, we see Jesus once again giving what seems like an odd prescription. Chapter 2, verse 1, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Can you guess what's going to happen? Verse 2, Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. How'd you like this to happen at your next Koinonia group? They tear the roof off your house. This was Peter's house. In context of Mark chapter 1, We know that it's Peter's house. It says when he had come to Capernaum, when he was at home, it was Peter's house. And so uh, Peter's there, and these people come, walk up onto the top of, of the roof where Jesus was, and they tear the roof off. Well, it's not as bad as it sounds. Actually, every fall, these roofs had to be typically replaced anyway. So it's not a major deal. But still, can you imagine? These friends had such faith in Christ's ability that they bring their friend, this paralytic, carried to him. The leper's message created crowds, all intent on doing one thing, having their physical needs met." Um, The archaeological discoveries in Capernaum revealed these houses made of, the walls are made of basalt rock. If you go to Capernaum today, you can still see those basalt rocks that form the outline and the shape of the houses. But the the roofs were made of uh, support reeds, branches with mud, and it would be very easy to tear it up and fairly easy to repair it. The men came for this man's healing, clearly. But look what Jesus said, verse uh, verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" Your sins are forgiven. That's not why they came. Your sins are forgiven. I remember uh, reading a book that Johnny Erickson Tata wrote uh, some years ago. It was on suffering. I don't remember exactly the title, it's The Sovereignty of God and Suffering, something like that. It was a great book. But in the opening chapter, she talks about the fact that um, a friend of hers at the time came up and said, you know, Johnny, if you just had enough faith, you could be healed. And, uh, you know, Johnny listened to him. And then she turned to this passage. And she said, You know, this actually says that it was their friend's faith that made the difference. She says, You're the reason I'm not healed. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like the truth to tear down what seems like a good argument. Have you seen that commercial on TV? Uh, car commercials, car insurance commercials are the best commercials. Not the Geico thing, but you know some of the others. Like one of the ones that I thought was really creative was it, it starts off and it shows this lawyer sitting across the table from a guy in prison, and the lawyer's on the phone. He goes, "Uh huh, uh huh," and then he smiles and he looks over at the prisoner and you know, gives him a thumbs up and he hangs up the phone. And the prisoner goes, so what's, what's the good news? Am I out of here? And the, and the lawyer said, no, I just saved a $1,000 on my car insurance. <laughs> and I, when I saw that commercial, I thought of this passage because that is not what the lawyer was there for. The lawyer was there to help the prisoner. When these people brought the paralytic to Jesus and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, well, that's nice, but that's not why we're here. We're here to get this guy healed." It was an odd prescription, wasn't it? I thought about that also when I go to the doctor, how weird it would feel. Imagine you go in the doctor, you're sitting on his table. They just have taken an x-ray. He comes in with the x-rays in his hands, closes the door, and says, well, I got good news for you. Your sins are forgiven. You kind of look at him and think, that's great, doctor, but you know how's my how's my arm or, or whatever it was that you're there for. These men didn't bring their friend to Jesus to have his sins forgiven, but Jesus dealt with the man's greater need first. This was right in line with Jesus' priorities that he revealed back in chapter one. I am here to proclaim the kingdom of God. The healing supports that; it's not the other way around. So I'm going to deal with first things first. Friend, your sins are forgiven. If your doctor told you that, you'd almost be offended. Who are you to tell me that, doctor? And that was exactly the response of the scribes. Look at verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Notice they don't say it out loud in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? They were saying, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus kind of tips his hand in, in a way, because he also says, The implication is, and who can read minds but God alone? I know what you're thinking, and he tells them exactly what they're thinking. And he says, which is easier, to say this or to say that? To say your sins are forgiven or to say you're healed? Well, obviously, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because who knows? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But if you say, get up and walk, buddy, you'd better deliver or you're a false, you know, a false prophet. It's a lot easier to say this as to say that. Their statement is correct. Only God can forgive sins. And if that's the case, you've got one or two choices here. Jesus is just talking big, or Jesus is God. So Jesus' words are either very outrageous, or they are incredibly wonderful. The purpose of the miracles, remember, the purpose of Jesus' miracles was not just compassion, but it was also validation of his message. That's why he says this. Which is easier to say this? Which is easier to say, this or that? But in order that you may know, he goes on, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus said, In order that you may know. Know what? that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. How is it that Jesus, before the cross, has authority to forgive sins? On what basis can he forgive sins? I mean, he's not yet died on the cross. How can he just willy-nilly go around forgiving sins? There's not even a sacrifice made here, and he says your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgave sins in the same way that the Old Testament, sac- the Old Testament sins were forgiven Remember we talked in the past about um, sins forgiven on credit. All Old Testament sins were forgiven or credited to them as righteous because they believed, looking forward to when Jesus would ultimately pay the bill on the cross. The same is true here. Jesus says your sins are forgiven, basically, on credit, because here in a few years I'm going to take care of that down in Jerusalem. Jesus is able to forgive sins on the basis of what he knows he will do. And this man's sins are forgiven. And the fact, in order that you may know that Jesus has authority to forgive sins, not just that he has authority to forgive sins, but also that sins are forgiven. That's important. This man is healed, meaning this man is also forgiven. The miracle supported the message. His sins were forgiven. Now, I emphasize that because I also want to emphasize something about your life. How do you know your sins are forgiven? I mean, we read it in the Bible, and we believe the Word, but how do you know that your sins are forgiven? I turn to Romans, stay and keep your finger in Mark, but turn to Romans, the very end of chapter 4. I'm, I know I've shared this before, and it won't be the last time either, because it is powerful. And if this is a couple of verses that you don't yet have in your mind, not not even necessarily memorized, but certainly you know where to come anytime you doubt your salvation. Romans four, verse twenty-five. Paul writes these words: "He," meaning Jesus, "who was delivered over because of our transgressions." So pause there for a second. Jesus died because of our sins. He was delivered over because of our transgressions, keep going, and was raised because of our justification. In other words, Jesus' resurrection, the miracle of the resurrection, proves our justification. Justification means that our sins are forgiven, that we're right with God. And the very next verse, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If Romans 4.25 and 5.1 are not in your memory bank, please put them there. It's a great place for you to come back to. And I mention it here because it's the same idea. How did this man know his sins were forgiven? Jesus did a miracle. How do we know our sins are forgiven? Jesus did a miracle. He was raised from the dead. Paul says that he was raised because of our justification. So anytime you doubt that your sins are forgiven, think about the resurrection. The resurrection is proof positive that your sins are forgiven. It's a great lesson on assurance. But notice also in this passage... That odd prescription, your sins are forgiven. He said that first before he healed him. Jesus forgave his sins before he healed his body. You know what? The same is true of you and me. Jesus is going to deal with your sins before he deals with your body. He has forgiven your sins by you placing your faith in him before he has healed your body. It's the same with you as it was with this paralytic. And the reason that is, is because our physical needs draw us close and make us sensitive to our spiritual needs. Here's the second principle. While God cares for our physical needs, our relationship with him is his first concern. While God cares for our physical needs, our relationship with him is his first concern. Jesus came to, this paralytic was brought to Jesus and he dealt with his sins first. That was his first concern. When Peter and, and the companions in the end of chapter 1 came looking for Jesus and said, everybody's looking for you, he says, great, let's leave because my first concern is not just physical, it's spiritual. God cares for our physical needs, but our relationship with him is his first concern. Think about what you pray for. Most of the time, we pray for our physical needs, our immediate physical needs, or those of our loved ones. Lord, I need money. Lord, I need healing. Lord, please help my friend in this particular circumstance. Physical, 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 legitimate. But notice that the physical need, what are the physical needs causing you to do? Pray. Pray. Your physical needs and your physical struggle are drawing you to God, to your spiritual life. It was the same here. This paralytic was brought to Jesus, and Jesus blessed him spiritually before he blessed him physically. The same is true in our lives. Paul cried out to God several times to remove the thorn in his flesh, but God said, No, my grace is sufficient for you. Job cried out to God for relief. But God allowed Job to struggle only as long as it served his relationship with Job. Or the other way around, as long as it served Job's relationship with God. Our physical life is what God uses for our spiritual life. Jesus is going to give you some really odd prescriptions in life. You're going to read through the Gospels. You're going to read through the the Word of God as a whole and see some really unusual things. He told Peter, you can think of several, he told Peter, go to the lake, throw in a hook. Not in any bait, just throw in a hook. You're going to catch a fish. Inside that fish is going to be a coin. You can pay your taxes. That sounds like an odd prescription. But it worked. It worked. Um, Don't you wish it worked like that come April 15th? Let's just all go fishing. (coughs) take care of it. But God's going to give you some odd prescriptions. You're going to want to put the bolt in upside down instead of right side up, or vice versa. Jesus told the man who had been cleansed, don't tell anybody, only tell the priests. Jesus told a lame man, you're forgiven. This week, you're going to be tempted to directly disobey something that doesn't square with your common sense. Your physical struggles are the means by which God strengthens your spiritual life. So when you struggle physically, remember that. God is drawing you close to Him. It seems like an odd prescription, but in reality it makes the most sense that we are never really, truly satisfied until we're living as until we live as we're created to live, and that's in relationship with God. Initially, Mark has worked his way through this first chapter and the beginning of chapter two to introduce us to a Messiah who is not primarily bent on spiritual freedom, uh, on political freedom, but on spiritual freedom. Think about our, our own lives and our own needs And as best we can in our quiet moments with the Lord, let's also refocus our focus. It doesn't mean that the the physical doesn't matter or that the political doesn't matter or that anything in this life that we're really struggling over physically doesn't matter. But all of those things are used by God to draw us close to him and to draw our relationship with him closer and closer. Okay, well, let's pray. Look, 10 minutes early. Fantastic. Father, thank you for this uh, text in the book of Mark. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit present with us to give us insight beyond mere words on the page. Thank you for the challenges that we have that draw us close to you and really force us to open our hearts to you. We love you, Lord. We love you. We trust you, and we desperately need you. Everybody in this room can think of friends and family and even personal needs that immediately lie below the surface. Deep needs, deep struggles, emotionally, personally, physically. And each of those things forces us to bow our head before you because we're helpless. Like the paralytic let down, couldn't even get to Jesus, had to have people bring him. We are that man. Before you, we are physically and spiritually bankrupt. And if you are willing, you can cleanse us. And you've revealed, not only in this passage, but in the Word of God as a whole, you are willing. You have provided all that is necessary first and foremost for us spiritually through your death on the cross but also for us physically as, a, as the physical healings that we see in the scripture give testimony and even the small physical healings that we enjoy in this life are all simply preludes to the wonderful resurrection that we will enjoy in the kingdom of God when Jesus reigns on this very earth, and we serve him. Refocus our minds, Lord, to keep the first things first this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.